While the, uh, while the ex-kids step away, let me thank our special musicians this morning. We have uh, uh, Jason Love. Jason Love of the Columbia Orchestra uh, playing strings along with Rachel Holiday. And uh, not only did... Not only did we rip off the Book of Common Prayer from the Episcopalians, we grabbed one of their priests this morning, Richard Proctor, Father Richard Proctor on, uh, on drums. Great to have you with us, Richard. Well, we are... Are the children away? We are in the Song of Songs, and uh, the Song of Songs, for those of you who are just joining us on this, is uh, one book of the Bible that is entirely about sex and that's what it's about. Um, God, in his wisdom, inspired one of the 66 books of his holy scriptures to be about sex. You may have heard that this is a book that's allegorical, that it really talks about the love between God and his people or between Christ and the church. And there, it's possible to read it that way. But at the end of the day, this is a book which is a series of poems. It's a collection of songs, almost like a record album that is about people knocking boots. And so, as we have been going through the Song of Songs this summer, we have been trying to explore the various dimensions of human sexuality that are uh, revealed in it. And uh, one of the things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks has been the wild, untamed nature of human sexuality, the fact that there is a certain animal drive in us, however enlightened we may be, however enlightened we may think we may we may think we are, we are, after all, both human beings and animals, and we are made in the image of God, bearing the image of God. We have moral responsibility, we have intelligence, we have the ability to make choices, to think conceptually and be rational. But as animals, we respond to those primal urges those urges to fight or to flee or reproduce that you hear about on those nature shows. And Joe, a couple weeks ago when Joe was preaching, Joe talked about how even though in the context of this series we've talked about the importance of, of celebrating human sexuality and, and uh, practicing it according to the bounds that God has given us, he said, you know, I don't like bounds. I don't like boundaries. I want to be free. Last week, his title of his sermon, in fact, was Release the Kraken. And his cry was Release the Kraken and let T-Rex hunt, if you remember his illustration from Jurassic Park. And all of that is absolutely true. And so, like with most things, there's a complementary on the one hand and on the other hand to this. And on the one hand, there is a wild, untamed quality to human sexuality. There is a sense in which we are not supposed to have it all make sense for us. But there also is a way in which we have to recognize that there are bounds that God has established, that there are rules, there are ways that we are called to enjoy it. And so the question arises, I'm sure, when you hear about both of those, well... Like Kenan Thompson's character on Saturday Night Live, what's up with that? And I think the garden imagery that we have in the song is helpful for us in, in resolving this. So I want us to look in chapter 4 of Song of Songs, starting in verse 12. 
This is the voice of the male lover. You have, uh, throughout the Song of Songs, you've got both male and female voices, and then you also have sort of like the Greek chorus. You have the friends popping in from time to time, offering their commentary. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, every kind of incense tree with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And her response is, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And he replies, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And their friends, the chorus says, eat, friends, and drink. Be drunk with love. Now, this kind of poetry is not unknown among the other civilizations of the ancient Near East. This actually gives us some insight as to what might be going on here with this garden imagery. There's a a poem from ancient Egypt uh, in which the, the male lover exclaims, How intoxicating are the plants of my wetland! The lips of my beloved are the bud of a lotus, her breasts are mandrakes. And then she says, I belong to you like a garden which I have made to bloom with flowers and every sweet herb. Delightful is the canal there dug by your hand to refresh us in the breeze. A lovely place for strolling, your hand holding mine. We have this from uh, ancient Samaria as well. You have Demuz saying, let me go, let me go. I'm sorry, Inanna to her lover Demuz. Let me go, let me go to the garden, let me go. Me, the lady, let me go. Let me go to the garden. Me, the lady of heaven, let me go. Let me go to the garden. In the garden dwells the man of my heart. And then you have the Akkadian love poem. My Lord, put an earring on me. Let me give you pleasure in the garden. For what, for what are you adorned, my dear? So that I may go to the garden with you. Let me go to the garden, to the garden Let me go alone to the beautiful garden. But then we have more of this language about the garden and about water. It sprouts, it sprouts. It is the lettuce he watered in the garden of deep shade, bending down his neck, my darling of his mother, my one who fills the grain in their furrows with beauty. He watered my apple tree bearing fruit at its top. It is the garden he watered. Now, I suppose theoretically this could be about agronomy. I suppose theoretically him saying that he has come into his garden, he has eaten his honey and his honeycomb is really just his latest post on his food blog. But I don't think that is what is going on here at all. This is evocative and sensuous imagery that the biblical author is giving us to depict the richness of the sexual relationship that these two young lovers have. 
It's beautiful and it's exciting and it's stirring. When you think about this garden picture, you can understand why it makes sense as a as a picture of the blessed enjoyment of sexual pleasure. When you think about a garden, a garden is a place that is beautiful, right? A garden is a place that is fragrant. It's a place where there are sensual pleasures. It's a place where you stay for a while. It's a a place where you would rest and enjoy yourself. A a garden is a kind of place you would want to be. And, And it's a place that, in order to work like that, has to be nurtured. Right? It has to be cultivated. You think even, even way back in, in the garden, the story we have of Adam and Eve, God placed them in the garden to work the garden. The, the apples didn't fall off the tree into nice little piles and put themselves away in baskets. The, I, I'm pretty sure the mint did not stay in its place without being trimmed back. The, the garden has to be cultivated for it to be a garden. Otherwise, it just goes wild. But when a garden is cultivated... And you get the kind of thing that the writer gives us in chapter 6 where the the friends, the chorus says, Where has your lover gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your lover turn that we may look for him with you? She says, My lover has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my lover and my lover is mine. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. Again, unless he's working for FTD, I think this is supposed to be evocative of something else. This garden is a beautiful place that has to be nurtured, like the song says, a garden to nurture and to protect. Because a garden is a bounded space. Have you ever seen a garden that was just wide open? doesn't fit the idea. The garden is a place that is enclosed. It's a place that is private. It's walled off. I was reminded a few weeks ago when I was visiting my folks. I remember driving through my old neighborhood and driving past. There was that club that I couldn't go to, and then there was that club that I couldn't afford to go to, and there was that club where my friends who had money could go and once in a while would invite me. You know, and then there was the country club where I went because I worked as a caddy and I was carrying golf clubs where people could afford to belong there. But these are places that have to be nurtured and have to be protected against just anybody coming in, right? I mean, it wouldn't be much of a club if anybody could get in, as Groucho Marx would tell us. Now, a garden is a bounded space. It's a space that has to be protected. And when the male lover in the song says to his beloved, he says, you are a garden locked up. My sister, my bride, you're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. There's a play on the words in Hebrew here. And he's trying to bring out the fact that she is locked up, she is enclosed for him. This garden is a space that is for him and for him alone. This garden of pleasure is for them and for them alone. They cultivate it. They nurture it. And they also have to protect it, which is something that the poem on the other side in your bulletin gets at. If you look back in chapter 2, there's this nifty little verse where 
in verse 14, the male lover says, My dove in the clefts of the rock and the hiding places on the mountainside. There again, you have her hidden away, walled in. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. And then he says, Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Again, vineyards, much like gardens, are places that have to be cultivated. If if you don't prune a a grapevine, it's not going to produce much in the way of wine for you. He says, catch for us the foxes, those little foxes that ruin the vineyards. Now, some of the commentators think that this is more playful speech, that he's saying, catch the little foxes, and I'm a little fox, and I'm going to ruin your vineyard. Others say that this is a song that uh, represents banter between young men and young women. But there's another interpretation that, that just keeps making more and more sense to me, which, which is that there are things that are going to ruin the vineyard if you let them. You have to nurture the garden and you have to protect the garden because there are little foxes that will come in and spoil what is there that will ruin it. I think we can all think of those things, the little foxes that can get in the way of our being able to enjoy the garden. This is why it's so important that those of us who are married guard ourselves against letting anyone else into that garden in any way other than our spouse whether physically or just in our hearts, in our minds. You may have had a strange experience, and I know this this was sort of a cultural shift for many of us when we went from being single to being married, when we would call somebody and ask them to go do something, and they would say no because they were going to be staying home. You didn't used to stay home. I didn't used to be married either. Sometimes we have to protect, even against good things, but then there are plenty of bad things as well. Certainly this is why we have to guard against the destructive influences of, of pornography. We have to be careful about where we set our eyes. But there are also little foxes, again, that are not themselves evil. And by that, I would point out especially the cute little foxes among us. There's one fussing back there. I think in this congregation, perhaps among the most dangerous of the little foxes are the cute little foxes that threaten to ruin our vineyards. Can I get an amen? Amen. You know, I hear about people who say, well, you know, I thought we'd have kids because that would bring us closer together. That's like trying to deal with asthma by taking up smoking. (laughs) You know, in, in the... In, 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 you know, again, like, you know, news that, news that you already knew. This is in the sun from last year. Fathers to risk depression from childbirth. Research suggests depression twice as common in new dads. No kidding. Look, let me just give this to you from a father's perspective, okay? All right? You are now having to share your wife with this creature that has come out of the womb clutching fistfuls of libido and energy and is now interfering with your sleep. You are not getting sex nearly as often as you used to, and when you do, there's always the risk that one of these things may start crying or come in. I mean, for look, 
There, one way you start keep the little foxes from ruining the vineyard is you go and to go to Home Depot and invest in a lock on the bedroom door. That's one of the most important things you can do. But you know, this this body of your wife's that is this pleasure garden of yours, this stately pleasure dome for you, is now been torn apart by this little creature that is demanding everything from you. No wonder you get a little bit of hostility on the part of new dads sometimes. And it's no, no picnic for the moms either, for that matter. I just can't speak to that from personal experience. But we have to watch out for these little foxes because we have to nurture and protect this garden that God has given us. And ultimately, these rules, these bounds that we set are not just about having rules and having boundaries, not just about setting up walls so that you can sit back and look and say, oh, I guess i got a nice little wall there. Ultimately, these are things that liberate us, the things that discipline us ultimately liberate us. G.K. Chesterton, a great Catholic writer, apologist, and by great, I mean he was really fat, And he smoked cigars. Chesterton gave us the picture of little kids playing up on a hilltop with a cliff. He said, you know, if if they're just up there on the hilltop, they're going to huddle together. They're going to be very, very cautious. They're going to be afraid of falling off the cliff. But if you put a fence up by the cliff, they're going to go running around like crazy. The fence is going to prevent them from danger. And that's going to liberate them to live as God intended them to. And that's what these bonds do. The, the bonds of marriage liberate us to live freely and joyfully and wildly within a marriage. These are the things that God graciously gives us to protect us. But they're things that we have to constantly work on building on nurturing and protecting. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for your teaching. We're grateful for the vividness, the beauty of your word. We're grateful that none of this sex stuff is a surprise to you, that you did not one day look down at what Adam and Eve were doing and get all horrified, but that this was part of your design for humanity, that you knew that sex is good for us. It was good for us to enjoy within the bonds of marriage and that you give that to us as a good gift to be enjoyed when we're there and anticipated when we're not. Pray that you would enable us who are married to nurture and to protect our gardens. Help us to help one another to do that. Give us eyes to see the little foxes threaten to ruin our vineyards. Lord, give us the grace to recognize what it looks like for us to live freely within the bonds you've given us. We pray that this would be to the health of our marriages, to our joy, and ultimately to your glory and your joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
please stand as we close our